Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we will continue our reflections into Paul's letter to Philemon, evening number four, huh? This study on Philemon will be five nights, so we will do tonight and then tomorrow night, and that will wrap up our study on Paul's letter to Philemon. You know, we only have here 25 verses, right? (laughs) 25 verses to reflect with, so certainly five nights should justify a good case study on what Paul is intending to mean when he's writing this great exhortation to Philemon on his relationship with one Simus that we've been talking about. Now, before we jump back into that study, I did want to respond to a question, a question that comes up from time to time. Joe, is something lost in the English translations from the Greek. So here you have a question that has us taking up once again, just not the interpretation of sacred scripture, but the issue of translation. And you have heard me talk about this on many occasions, but it has been quite some time that any time you go to translate the Hebrew, uh, the Greek, what you are tasked with is translating a much more robust language a much more expansive language. I mean, one Hebrew word can mean so many things. One Greek word can mean so many things. So when you look at these translations, certainly we have um, professionals who have studied uh, all of those details in Hebrew and Greek. But as we read the English, not knowing the Hebrew or Greek, sometimes, yes, we do lose something. Now, does that mean that we cannot be inspired? Of course not. But this does lead to this call we have to roll up our sleeves a little bit so as to be better students of sacred scripture. What do I mean? Well, consider the passage that we have from Luke chapter 1, verse 28, that great angelic salutation from the archangel Gabriel to Mary, when he says, hail full of grace, hail full of grace. You've seen that probably translated as rejoice, O highly favored one. And you've heard me say before, Rejoice, O highly favored one, and hail full of grace. Work, hail full of grace is probably the better translation. But remember, the root to that Greek, kekaritomene, charis, means what? Grace or joy. So, rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace does work. The problem with the English that we will just miss is we don't know what kind of Greek word that is. And what kind is it? Well, it's a perfect participle, okay? Kekartomene is a perfect participle, which means it's an action completed in the past. So it's just not that we look at that verse and say, okay, rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace, but it is rejoice, O highly favored one, and hail full of grace, something that was completed in the past. So this is an important passage because once we see that this great angelic salutation speaks to something that was completed in the past, now we have a new context, right? Now we have an entirely new context. Something else here as it relates to the Greek, and now I'm thinking about 
the encounter between uh, the Magi and the infant king. When the Magi encounter the infant king, the Greek translates this encounter in a very long Greek word, a word that amounts to, I think, 11 or 13 syllables. Now, what we have to understand about the Greek, and again, this is just something we might not know, but often it's just one, two, maybe three syllables, okay? This long Greek word that describes the Magi's encounter with the infant king is an 11, 13 syllable word, okay? So we translate that Greek as they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, when you hear that, you can begin to imagine what's going on there, right? They just didn't rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And they just didn't rejoice exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, so you have this English trying to translate this very explosive Greek, and I do think in this case, actually, the English does a pretty good job because you can begin to grasp what's going on here. But the Greek is absolutely powerful. And yes, you can begin to grasp it in the English, but what we don't get in the English that you certainly get in the Greek, there's this deep sense of transformation going on in the Greek. So they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because they were transformed by this encounter. We tend to read this narrative during the Epiphany season. We think to ourselves, boy, they, they must have been tired, right? No, when they fell to the ground, they fell prostrate. They worshiped the infant king. And again, the Greek spells all of this out. So while the English language does in fact translate the Greek good enough for us to certainly encounter God, it's the inspired word of God and when we read the English language, it should inspire us. To get to know what is going on in the Greek, my friends, is definitely invaluable. Invaluable. Now, you might be asking the question, but I don't know Greek, Joe. And this is why reading commentaries is good. What, what have we been doing here on Seeds of Truth for the past 11 years? Anytime we take up the text, we do so with commentaries, and I might fill in some gaps here or there, but I'm uh, attentive to the Hebrew and the Greek, and for that matter, the Latin, right? The one advantage with Latin is that it has the ability, it has the muscle power, we could say, to translate the Hebrew or the Greek. And that's why Latin has, has been the language of the church, because from the Latin you can get a better translation of the English. So anyhow, again, the scenic route to answering that question, but I do think it's important we understand what is going on here? First and foremost, that the English language that the Bible translated in English can certainly inspire us, and we are encountering the Word of God. But I would say, as you have heard me say before, if we are serious about a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you want to go deeper and deeper in that relationship with Jesus Christ, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to get into some commentaries and see what's going on in the Hebrew and Greek that you might gain a deeper appreciation of what is going on in the text. Now, this is a very timely reflection because as we get into verses 15 to 20 in Paul's letter to Philemon, you will certainly see the significance of what is going on in the Greek. Okay, with that, let us turn to Philemon. If you have your Bibles out, turn to verses 15 to 20. I will read verses 15 to 20, and tomorrow we will treat uh, verses 
21 to 25. Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, beloved especially to me, but even more so to you as a man and in the Lord. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any injustice or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will pay. May I not tell you that you owe me your very self? Yes, brother, may I profit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So there's that word again, heart. Refresh my heart in Christ. So here in this opening verse, that is verse 15, Paul's statement of the consequence that Philemon might have when Simon is back forever is wonderfully ironic, is it not? On the one hand, Paul knows full well that if his request succeeds, Philemon will lose the service of his slave one Simus, right? But on the other hand, now that the slave is his brother in Christ, he will indeed have that relationship with him forever. Now, my dear friends, by virtue of his baptism in Christ, one Simus has now become, what does Paul say? Philemon's brother in Christ. This single word, brother, is so, so important in the life of our faith. And certainly we can say here in this epistle, right? Because this single word carries a powerfully um, counter-cultural principle that baptism into Christ creates an identity that transcends all forms of social and cultural discrimination. I think we need to hear this today, do we not? October 30th, 2017, where we tend to set up factions of this color and that color. Huh? What does Paul say here? If we are baptized into Christ, and remember, it's one thing to say in, but another to say into, because when Jesus says, go therefore and baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, when you translate the Greek, here you go, the importance of the Greek, right? He's actually saying, go therefore and baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This just isn't some abstract formula. We are being incorporated into the very divine life of God. That's not me, Joe Holcraft, that's Jesus Christ, okay? And so when Paul is talking about this brotherhood, he is saying when when Simus was baptized into Christ, he was baptized into his very divine life and love. So very important, especially for us today who tend to look at people differently. Christians are Christians. What does the word Christian mean? Well, Christ-like, right? And we become Christians when we are baptized into Christ. Our brotherhood is rooted in Christ. Therefore, <laughs> it is rooted in truth. Truth is what we have in common, right? Truth is what you put in the middle of, of the table. It is what we gather around. Not just what we think we know, but what has been revealed in and through Jesus Christ. So many of the conversations today, especially when you start getting into social and, and political conversations, are about what you think or about what I think, as opposed to what has already been revealed. Brothers and sisters, truth is outside of us. 
never reduced to just what is inside of us, something that we can come together on. I was reading an article uh, this past week. It was an excellent article. And the priest was talking about how, yes, there are things that different Christian denominations have in common, but there's one thing that brings all Christians together, and that is persecution. Persecution. Why? Why does persecution bring people together? Because you are being persecuted in the name of the person of Jesus Christ. Persecution has a way of bringing the truth of Jesus into the middle of the discussion. Uh, So be mindful of that, especially when we find ourselves in these situations where we might say to ourselves, well, why aren't you taking my side? Why is it that you're taking his side or her side, the other person's side? Don't you understand what I've been going through? Have we not had a friendship for over 20 years? Why are you taking his side, someone you've only known for five, six, seven years? Brothers and sisters in Christ, is it about taking sides? Is it about taking sides? Or is it about bearing witness to truth, siding with truth, allowing truth to heal, to bring understanding to uh, the perilous situation we might find ourselves in? We have to humble ourselves before truth. We have to humble ourselves before our own sin. If we cannot identify our own sin, what does John say? (laughs) If you do not confront the reality of sin, then death will follow because sin is death. So don't be so concerned about whether or not someone agrees with you. Humble yourself before your sin. Allow truth to minister to you. And then, and then, whatever situation you might find yourself in will be healed in time if all parties allow truth to prevail. Because if you are rooted in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ desires to heal. He desires reconciliation. Be rest assured, my friends, The chaos that you might find in your life right now, that belongs to the adversary. That belongs to Satan. Satan's name means to confuse. He's the father of all lies. Where he goes, chaos goes. Where he goes, disorder goes. Dysfunction goes. But where Jesus abides, so does reconciliation. So does healing. So we have to be willing to take up this question. Do I look upon my brother or sister as one in Christ? And now that I see them in Christ, do I allow truth to minister to that situation that I might find myself in with that brother or sister in Christ? Huge point here. Huge point that we are talking about. Okay, now, Paul also says, (laughs) so if you regard me as a partner... Welcome him as you would me. Ooh, that's some strong language there, is it not? Now, some scholars take partner, koinonon is the Greek there, to be a clue that Paul was some kind of business partner. The word seems to have that meaning. If you go back into Luke chapter 5, verse 10, where it refers to partners in a fishing business. But this is a word Paul uses 
for fellow missionaries. If you were with me in our treatment of 2 Corinthians, we really drew this out, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 21, 22, 23 and following, where St. Paul calls Titus his partner, his co-worker, okay? So as in the case here, what is St. Paul doing? Well, he's speaking to Philemon's partnership. So there's a much richer meaning here. This is what we're after. Because now one Simus too is a partner in the faith that Philemon already shares with Paul. Beautiful. I love this phrase, welcome him as you would me, huh? Of course Philemon would roll out the red carpet for Paul. For Philemon to welcome the errant slave in this way, <laughs> however, would be a shockingly countercultural exercise in hospitality. And it seems this is exactly what Paul wants him to do. Be countercultural. Shock those around you. Okay? Brothers and sisters, we are all called to be holy. The word holy simply means to be set apart. To be set apart from what? To be set apart from the norm. To be set apart from culture. St. Paul is really charging Philemon to be shockingly countercultural. And so he challenges us to be shockingly countercultural in what we do. Now, in these series of verses, how is he being shockingly countercultural? Well, he's essentially telling him to forgive. To forgive. And to really hammer home this point, what does St. Paul do? <laughs> well, what do we read in verse 18? And if he has done you any injustice or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then verse 19, I, Paul, write this on my hand. I will pay. I will pay. St. Paul is willing to go so far as to pay his debt, to forgive his debt. What an extraordinary act of mercy it is to forgive debt, especially when debt weighs someone down. Now, does this mean we should not pay back the people we owe? No. No, we are not saying that at all. Because if you owe someone a debt, you should pay them back. This brings about the distinction between justice and mercy, does it not? It is the just thing to pay someone back. It is the merciful thing, the merciful thing to forgive that debt. So while we always shoot for justice... Mercy, my friends, mercy transcends, and this is very, very important. What you have going on here is, once again, St. Paul wishing to set the example. If you have been with me over the course of the last seven and eight months, especially since we've been treating uh, St. Paul's letters, you, I'm sure, are now aware <laughs> that St. Paul is very practical. St. Paul is very human in how he goes about challenging those who he's writing to. Very, very rich here. And uh, I'd, I would say a richness that we need to all tap into because we all want God to speak to our practical matters. And with Paul, what we have is God speaking to our practical matters. Because time and time again, do we see not only Paul challenging us in practical matters, but also giving us wisdom 
in how to handle practical matters. All right, one of the things that these five verses, six verses highlight for us is this special duty we have to love fellow Christians. This is kind of a bottom line issue, is it not? I mean, this letter, which presents an example of a very specific relationship in the early church, highlights a a perennial Christian reality that as baptized Christians, we have a special relationship with all other baptized Christians. And again, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the background, okay? Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves is a call to a universal love. Remember what that word Catholic means. Catholic in the Greek, universal. A universal love. Especially as understood in the light of the call to, well, what does Jesus say? To love our enemies and to love those who, who are in need, of course, in the Good Samaritan parable. Paul is careful to emphasize that within this call to universal love, there is a special call to care for fellow Christians, right? What do we read in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35? I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So people are going to know you are Christians, and more specifically, disciples for Christianity, if you what? Love. Remember those all-important verses that come to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can do all sorts of things for God, where people pat you on the back, and they look good on the outside. But if you don't do those things in and with love, then where is the lasting power in that? If you want something to last, if it's a friendship, if it's a deed, if it's your teaching, then do it in love. Then do it in love. If you want to evangelize effectively, then do it in love. If you want to instruct and and catechize effectively, then do it in love. If you don't evangelize in love, and catechize in love, then there's no lasting power in it. Because God is not in it, my friends. You have heard the phrase before, hell is paved with the best intentions. We can even have a good before us and embrace the good, thinking that we're doing God's will. But my friends, if we haven't discerned it, and it is not rooted in love, then what good is that good? This is why discernment, and understanding how God works in your life is so important in your call to be a disciple. Even the word disciple, my friends, has the same root word as the word discernment. If you want to be (laughs) a disciple of Christ, you have to be disciplined in your discernment. Discernment, discipline, disciple, the root word there in the Latin means to understand. If you're going to understand how God is calling you forth to be a disciple, you have to be disciplined, and you have to be a person of discernment. Okay, so again, in these six verses, we've had some verses that have challenged us to really the core of who we are. 
What is that last verse? That last verse, verse 20. Yes, brother, may I profit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He's using that Greek word there for heart. That word that speaks to being gripped. Refresh my heart in Christ. Grip me in how you love. That's what St. Paul is saying there. (laughs) Show me that you are a Christian in how you love, in how you heart one another. We quote-unquote heart people in social media today. You put a heart next to something on Facebook or maybe a text, which means you like it, you heart it. Are you gripped by it? (laughs) We have to kind of think outside the box here. When you like something, when you heart something, are you gripped by it? Because this is what St. Paul is saying. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let me see your love that it might grip me, move me to the very core. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.